today. Wonderful to have you here. Welcome to the guests here in Hobart's beautiful St. David's Cathedral. And welcome to our guests wherever you are in the world, joining us either on Zoom or on Facebook. My name is Will Longbottom, and I'm a part of City Bible Forum Hobart. City Bible Forum is an organization that seeks to create spaces for people to engage in meaningful discussion and dialogue about life, faith, and meaning. Today, we kick off a new series of Bible Shots, a half-hour hit of something stimulating from the Bible. Over the next four weeks, we'll be looking at questions of politics, climate change, racism, and inequality. So we hope that you will join us for all four talks. My colleague at City Bible Forum, Aaron Johnstone, will be speaking to us today about the connection of church and politics with a lot of unrest globally and politics often breaking down along religious fault lines, some of you might be thinking, whatever happened to the separation of church and state? It's a great question to ask, and we're glad that you're here today to join us in that discussion. One of the ways that we'll be continuing the discussion throughout the week is through our Q&A page. For the people joining us online and for the people here in person, if you would like to ask a question, please go to citybibleforum.org slash Q&A to send your questions through. That's citybibleforum.org slash Q&A. Aaron will address your questions throughout the week to keep the conversation going, and he will release them onto our website, which is citybibleforum.org. And if the Bible shots questions bit, citybibleforum.org slash Bible shots. First, let me read a short passage from the Bible, which might help to set the scene for what we're talking about. Now, this is from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And All right, thanks everyone. Uh, welcome along to Bible Shots. This is the, the second series we've run in Hobart. It's great to have you guys along and great to have everyone who's tuning in uh, from wherever you are. Being in the midst of the pandemic has meant that uh, physical boundaries are less important, so it's great to be able to kind of enter this uh, vortex and kind of online space together. So welcome along wherever you are. Uh, yeah, my name's Aaron. I work for City Bible Forum in Hobart, and today we're starting our new series uh, over the first four weeks of September. We'll be looking at the, the question, does Christianity have a PR problem? 
And many would believe it does. And in many ways, uh, I would agree, uh, especially in light of history and uh, recent history and some of the things that have taken place around the world at the moment. The image we've used is a large uh, European structure on fire. Um, and it personally it makes me think of Christendom being a, a blaze. Um, kind of like, you can just see um, many people being able to resonate with this image, particularly in light of the, the Notre Dame fire last year, if you remember that. Uh, it was this kind of uh, crazy sight to see such a beautiful and historic church building in this cultural landmark uh, just engulfed in flames and kind of smoldering ruins parts of it. And what's interesting is that the fire wasn't destroyed from uh, outside forces like natural disaster or as a statement against the church, uh, rage, revenge, storm, any of these things. Apparently, it was a, an electrical fault on the inside meaning that those in charge of the church weren't even aware of it until it was too late. It seems like an apt metaphor for the way that many would view the Christian church at the moment, I think. Self-sabotaging techniques. Does Christianity have a peer upright? Well, over the next four weeks, we'll tackle, tackle a number of purely topics, including politics, climate change, racism, and inequality. And ultimately, I want to suggest that despite everything that, that we Christians say or do, Despite the times that we've looked uh, stupid, irresponsible, corrupt, self-serving, hateful, paranoid, whatever superlative comes to mind, despite all this, the Bible may actually surprise you and make you think again in terms of what Christianity actually stands for. So the hope is that by looking at what the Bible says, we can kind of cut through the culture wars together, find some common ground, and see historical Christianity and Christ for that matter with fresh eyes. So we hope you benefit from this series and stick around for all four weeks. But today I'm going to tackle politics, uh, which is of course no mean feat. So uh, I'm going to pray uh, pretty quickly today. So let's, let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we give thanks for uh, the Bible and uh, your words that you speak to us. We pray that as we look at them now, that you give us wisdom. And uh, for those who are coming to the Bible for the first time, we pray that this will be something that is surprising and insightful and uh, helps see Christianity in a different light. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're looking at the question, whatever happened to the separation of church and state? And uh, historically, Christians have had a pretty mixed relationship when it comes to politics and, and power. Many would believe that the, the two are toxic when combined. Uh, while others would say that the, the modern world and Western civilization couldn't have looked the way it does without the church's influence. Now, I'd love to give a kind of historical sweep, fleshing out how Christianity has dealt with power through the ages, uh, but we don't have time for that over uh, today's lunchtime slot, of course. Uh, maybe that can be a question for Q&A if you're interested in more about it. Instead, I want to liken the relationship between Christianity and power uh, to that of using a GPS in a large foreign city, where the Bible is the roadmap for Christians and kind of essential for getting where you need to go. Uh, it's there for all areas of life, but especially complex matters like politics. Especially when there are things at stake when, when it's easy to get seducted, uh, easy for corruption to take place. But Christianity has undoubtedly been at its best when Christians follow biblical principles in these complex environments. There's a lot of good that has come from Christianity historically, but there's been a lot of failure and shame and evil that has come about as well. And I would suggest it's due to the Bible being neglected, forgotten, lost over, co-opted or ignored completely. But historical record, that's a, that's a conversation for another day. Let's uh, zoom into today's part. Over the, the last few centuries, the church's influence has waned, and we've witnessed the rise of modernism and postmodernism, 
uh, world wars, globalism, secularism, capitalism, uh, and rapid technological change. And you can argue we've moved into something completely different now uh, in the 2000s, particularly with the rise of the internet. We've got the, the information age, um, and there's this kind of constant barrage of misinformation, disinformation, and falsehoods, and, and the, the rise of tribalism. There's the rejection of experts, the rise of conspiracy theories, growing inequality, grievance politics, and, and just vastly different ideas about what, what constitutes the good life. It's very divided. It's this kind of fractured world that we live in. And so it's in this context that we're going to explore how Christians ought to think about politics. And of course, the best way to do that is to turn to the pages of the Bible. For those who aren't Christians, I hope this will be an interesting glimpse into what the Bible actually says. So uh, come and peer behind the curtain with us today. To kick off, I want to look at the role of the state briefly. That's the first point that we'll look at. What is the role of the state? And um, there are a million books that we could go into that discuss this distinction, how um, the, the church should be separate from the state. I'm not really going to go into the kind of historical stuff there or the modern theories. Instead, I want to give a quick theological perspective. And by, by that, I mean what the Bible has to say about how these two things are. And this is important because the, the democratic norms that we've come to enjoy and appreciate and maybe even take for granted, they're, they're not inevitable. And one's ideology or theology will determine as well whether they entrench or affirm the values of the or whether they kind of push back against it in opposition. And I think it might surprise you. So I'm going to read from a, a, another passage of the Bible, Romans chapter 13, 1 to 7, and they'll be on the screen as well. Oh, I'll just read it. So Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. It says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against that authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. You want to be free from fear of the one in authority and do what is right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, and punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to your authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. The authorities are God's servants, they give their full time to government. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. So a few quick observations about that passage. Um, and there seem to be kind of three reasons, three uh, things that the state exists to do in God's eyes. And that is to create order, to administer justice, and to assist human cooperation. So let me uh, flesh them out a bit. Verses 1 to 2 um, talk about uh, governing authorities as being set up by God. So they're an institution ordained by God. In and of themselves, governments as institutions have authority and legitimacy. Even if they're pagan governments, like in Paul and Jesus' day, they're still, to, they're still a reflection of God's character, and the God who brings order out of chaos, imposes the laws and boundaries of nature and reality itself. Now, this doesn't automatically affirm every government's behaviour, but it affirms the institution. It means that regardless of who's in power, we're to respect that and not blatantly rebel as an hour of principle. But so Christians ought to be model citizens. 
who follow the laws and actively engage in their culture and their communities, even when their preferred government doesn't get in it. We want to model that order and peace is good. And the government is an institution that we support. It also means we support the broader institution of government, even over individuals in power. But did you notice that it says to submit to authorities in the, the plural sense? It's not just one ruler necessarily, but all those are asserted, all the kind of mechanisms of government. So things like the constitution, the justice system, local and high courts, parliament, Congress, the police and defence forces, local authorities, all of the various checks and balances that ought to shape our leaders' conduct and rules for governing, they, they're really important. Individual leaders will come and go, but the institution of government will continue. And it will continue to reflect God's character, desire, and want for order. And so we submit to, support, and are pro-government. Similar to having parents, I guess. You know, regardless of whether you're, you're blessed with great parents or the misfortune of bad parents, they're still your parents on the way. And when you live under their roof, you follow their rules as much as you can. The second thing I mentioned was that the state is there to administer justice. So, so verses 3 and 4 talk about governments being agents of wrath that bring judgment in the wrongdoing. And this is a good thing. Justice is such an essential part of any functional society, and, and wrongdoing needs to be punished, doesn't it? And laws ought to be a reflection of God's character, right? and are necessary, because we as humans, we're capable of great evil. And as Christians, we ought to believe more than anyone, right? because we know that sin and selfishness, and it's the root cause of much of the world's suffering in this world. And sin is ubiquitous, it's everywhere, and an ever-present reality needs to be restrained by us. They're confronted and dealt with in times. And what's more, there are lots of victims out there. Just as there are lots of people out there committing egregious acts of sin and evil, so too there are lots of people who are victims of sin. And as people, we crave and desire justice when we're wrong, when we're taken advantage of, when we're exploited, when we're wounded, when we're abused. Justice shouldn't be left to the mob or left only to those who have the power to do something about it. Justice needs to be available to all and to be as precise and impartial as possible. So verse 3 there says, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. So once again, God ordains government to fulfill this right. So there are people that are specially set aside to, to manage and minister, administer these issues of justice. This both encourages and ordered our society, like the earlier point, and once again it's a further reflection of God's character. That he is the God of justice and he's intimately concerned with those who suffer. But on the flip side, governments aren't just there to punish their own doing, they're there to encourage the common good as well. Which brings us to the third observation. Governments are there to assist human flourishing. <clears throat> it says in verse 3, do what is right and you'll be commended. And then verse 4 says that the one in authority is God's servant for your good. And I think it's also worth mentioning that the passage seems to assume good government. Not only will those in positions of power value justice, but they also should promote and encourage the common good. I think that's why in verses 6 and 7 it's talking about giving what you own. Some of these things have been mandatory and we won't get much of a say in it, uh, like taxes or other fees, honour in some circumstances. But others can be based on your assessment of it, the way that you view them, the way you respect them. And respect is won by putting in the work and helping society prosper. Not just economically, it's connected with the other things as well. 
Is there that sense of order, that sense of justice? Is there that sense of promoting people's well-being and common good? Are your tax dollars being put to good use? Do they take their duties and their oaths seriously? These are the questions we want to be asking in government. But let's not get the government confused with the role of the church in the world too. The government has these specific roles we just talked about, and then the church has a specific role in the world that we look at now. So what, what is the role of the church in the world? And by this I mean the, the kind of universal church. Christian churches everywhere and across history as one corporate movement and representation of Christ in the world. Though the church is made up of messy and fragile human beings, the church has a unique calling in the way that they tell relate to the world. And the first is to be a witness to the truth. To witness the truth. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 calls the church a pillar and foundation of the truth. A pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, of course, this particular truth is referring to is the truth of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And this is, a, this is a truth that we claim fits not only in uh, the rest of the Bible, which it does, but is a historical truth as well, that as Christians we claim to know. The case for, them, for Jesus being a historical figure who was crucified by Pontius Pilate, I think that's very clear. That's a truth that we depend on as Christians. Utterly significant for all people everywhere. And it's a life-changing truth as well that brings new life and purpose and a concrete basis for hope and peace and joy that lasts not only now but into eternity as well. We believe it to be the ultimate truth that defines our existence and changes our reality. But we're going to be witnesses to the truth of the gospel. We also need to be people that take truth in general seriously. One of the Ten Commandments is the law against bearing false witness. Ten we be people that tell the truth and love the truth. This means that we're not given to falsehoods and myths, conspiracy theories and heresies, but we're people that take truth seriously. And we're devoted to the truth. Because the scripture is about the truth. So we need to be careful about the things that we talk about, the rumors we hear, the things we read and share on the internet. So it's not the truth. And it reflects badly on our witness if we're not seen as truthful people, people that can't be trusted. People that are very gullible. People that maybe even say things or use to seek about secret arguments out of faith. So the church is called to be a witness of the truth. But the church is also called to be a force for good in society. So one of the great um, Christian cliches is to, to be in the world and not of it. I'm sure you've heard it before. And the thing is, it's a great cliche provided we actually stick to it. The idea comes from John chapter 15, verse 19, but it's also littered throughout the rest of Scripture as well. This call to, to live differently, but also to have different desires as well. It means that we don't go after the things that drive this world, like money, fame, luxury, or power. Instead, our priorities, our desires, our goals for this world, they're different. This, that is the role of the church. Be different. In the way that we live, the way that we think, the things that we hope to. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus calls us, the church, to be a light so that people see our good works and glorify God. And funnily enough, when the church focuses on those next to them, being followers of Christ and love our neighbours, funnily enough, the church actually starts to gain trust and influence in the world as a byproduct, just by na the nature of what we're already doing. It then gains the ability to speak truth to power. It can be a social conscience for the culture. Some, 
place that people look to for guidance. And not only that, but people will become more open to the gospel. But I fear some of that's been lost, which brings us to the final part of today's talk. And that's just to ask the question, what, what on earth is going on at the moment? What, what about the, the here and now? The, the whole world is watching at the moment events unfolding in the US and with the, the election uh, coming up in November. It feels to me that this is going to be the, the most consequential election that I've seen in my life. Uh, maybe you feel the same way. And I suppose the question for many years, why are Christians overwhelmingly in favour of Donald Trump? Well, well it seems like this, doesn't it? In 2016, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. I'm not sure the figures have changed all that much since then. Now, Biden seems to be making up some ground, but the gap's still pretty big. Now, I'm not going to say heaps about Christianity and Trumpism, but it's worth spending some time applying some other biblical principles to today's situation. And the first thing I'll mention is that Christians ought to be very careful about the issues. So there are, there are warnings with it throughout the Bible, warning of this, and imploring us to, to use wisdom when it comes to our relationships and the alliances that we have. But there are two New Testament references I want to draw our attention to. First is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, and then the next one is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 to 18. So I'll read them. But anyway, these are pretty clear warnings. And the first is about the, the fake Christian in 1 Corinthians 5. The Apostle Paul says, we must not associate with anyone who claims to be brother or sister that is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, standout, drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. So there's the fake Christian on the one hand, but there's also similar warnings against certain non Christians as well. Do not be yoked with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light up with darkness? So now, this should sound pretty straightforward and obvious. But in practice, it's been pretty different. And the, the rise of uh, Donald Trump has revealed some major problems with evangelicalism that have been building over the last few decades. Christians' embrace and, and fawning adoration of Trump has had devastating impacts on our witness and our credibility at times. The Bible makes clear that character matters. And it's pretty hard to argue that Trump has the sort of character that we have. He has the moral compass required, Christian faith, or the ability to speak and lead our country in crisis, to do the things that Romans 13 lays out. There's a tenuous relationship with the truth at best, and he flagrantly disregards the rule of law. And this should concern us. Some Christians might say back, but what about the conservative judges he's appointed, or, or that he fights for Christian causes? Well, I'd say that the, the ends never justify the means. For Christians, it's all about the means. And we should be aiming to be a Bible approach in all things. We can't be part of any judging views or alliances. Power for the sake of power has no place in Christianity. And selling our soul for political purposes means we forego the right to claim any sort of moral high ground. And the thing is, as Christians, we don't need something like that. We have everything that we need in Christ Jesus. He was humble compassionate, wise, prayerful, full of knowledge of the scriptures, self-aware, above reproach, delivers on his promises, changes lives for the better, was silent when people say to him, never exploited or bullied anyone, but was willing to be exploited, beaten, tortured, and hung on a cross for his enemies. And power was there for the taking, they 
And that's the sort of data that we should be following. And really, isn't that all that we need? Christians should be known for associating with and following Jesus, not some hack politician who becomes this cultural power in We need to be careful about who we associate with. But we also need to give God what is ours. We'll just run through the last point very quickly, more of the time. Um, I want to close by returning to the story that Wilbur read earlier, uh, where Jesus has this kind of fascinating exchange with the Pharisees. And for context, the Pharisees, they're, they're Jesus' biggest enemies at the time. And they're, they're kind of going on this trapping expedition. They're baiting Jesus to try and get him to slip up you know, after he's embarrassed them uh, multiple times. And it's really quite ingenious what they come up with on this, on this occasion. They, they gather up their arch rivals, the Herodians, uh, who were loyal to Rome, it's the, the, the being named after King Herod. And after a bit of flattery, they asked him, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? This carefully uh, crafted question comes with quite the nasty hook entangled inside. If Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay, then Jesus would have been seen as an enemy of Rome and the emperor, and a political revolutionary to be arrested. But if he says yes, then he'd be seen as a paper tiger, a weak, betraying his fellow Jews and undermining his, his own claims about the kingdom of God. So it's quite a tricky situation that they potentially put him in. But Jesus responds with the perfect answer. He asks them to bring a coin and ask, he asks them whose image is unto Caesar's. So Jesus says, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. In one fell swoop, he both legitimizes and delegitimizes the power of government. On the one hand, give to what you owe to those governing you. But on the other hand, Jesus is the only one that deserves our full allegiance. The government only has a, a certain point in their lives, but the God of the universe has an absolute point in their lives. Did you notice that Jesus asks, he asks whose image is on it? Well, it's echoing when God created man and woman. He, he makes us in his image. He's effectively likening us to, to one of God's points. We bear his image, we belong to him, regardless of whether we're a Christian or not. And so this answer is a plan for everyone to, to give to God what we want. Yourself, your very life, your very allegiance. If you're not a Christian today, I think you should take that plan very seriously. And if you are a Christian, well, you should also take that plan seriously. Although the application might look a little bit different. I want to suggest that Christians should not have an allegiance to any one particular party or political ideology, not even to a single cause. Why? Because our allegiance is to Jesus. We shouldn't be unduly swayed by worldly political forces, whether that's coming from the political left or the political right. I mean, the hard right can hijack the church just as easily as radical progressives. We need to be careful. What a shame it is for our witness to the gospel when we become so consumed with politics. I think the Bible lays out a very simple, elegant, and beautiful vision for politics and a helpful distinction between the church and the state where they can coexist together for the betterment of society. So let's follow that vision. And even more, let's follow Christ. Let's use the Bible as our political roadmap and exercise its wisdom to do that. And if you're not a Christian today, well, the offer's there. 
having faith in politics and ending pre legislation. Faith in Christ the one. He's the only one that delivers on all of these promises. So let's give him what we want. Our very lives. And then I pray for our lives. Father in heaven, we give thanks for your wisdom. We thank you that your word still speaks into today. Words of life on every page. And we pray that as we look into it more and more, as we peer behind the curtain together, that we will understand more and more who Jesus is and how it applies to everyday life. So thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. So it brings us to a close today. We went a little bit over, so apologies for those live streaming. Um, hope it hasn't interrupted you on your workday too much. And uh, yeah, apologies to those here in person as well. Um, but yeah, we will wrap up now. Um, in terms of what's next, uh, we'd just love you to stay in touch with us. Um, we'll be doing the Q&A through, through the week as a video, so look out for that. Uh, if you've got questions, shoot them through to biblecrime.org slash Q-A-N-D-A. Uh, and apart from that, we'll be here same time next week. So I hope you can join us. We'll be tackling climate change together. So I hope you can make it to that one as well. Thanks very much and catch up with you.